Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Welcome to Space Junk Podcast. I'm your host, the distracted PhD student, Annie Handmer, and in this episode, I bring you part one of my conversation with the incredible Ingrid Okert. Dr. Ingrid Okert is a historian of science and media in the 20th century. She holds a PhD from the History of Science program at Princeton University. Ingrid was the 2018-2019 NASA and History of Science Society History Fellow and is currently serving as a postdoctoral fellow at the Science History Institute. We had a great conversation about representations of science on TV and the intersections between Star Trek, geopolitics and society. Before we leap in though, I just want to send a quick message out to all my listeners who've been affected by COVID-19. Here in Sydney, we've just entered a sort of shutdown period, and I'm anticipating being indoors for the next few weeks or possibly months. I know that many of you listening will also be doing so from your homes or perhaps hospitals, and I'd like to say a special thank you to all of the health workers who are working so hard to keep us healthy and safe. And I'd like to say a long overdue hello to all my international listeners. I feel that this experience is bringing us closer together, albeit in very difficult circumstances. So hello and my very best wishes to all listeners in New Zealand, Indonesia, Thailand, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, Iran, South Africa, Turkey, Ukraine, Estonia, Croatia, India, Hungary, Austria, Italy, Switzerland, Germany, Netherlands, Denmark, France, Spain, Portugal, United Kingdom, Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, USA, Canada, and of course, Australia. If I missed your country and you're listening, please let me know and I'll update my list. The bad news is that the pandemic has postponed all my travel plans, in-person interviews and speaking engagements for the next few months and likely longer. The good news is that I will be using my extra time to record bonus video content, which will be uploaded on my YouTube channel. Just search Annie Hanver and you should find it. And I'll also be bringing you podcasts as usual some recorded over video link uh, through the internet and others that are sitting in backlog. And now onto the podcast with the brilliant historian of science, Dr. Ingrid Okert. I am chatting with Dr. Ingrid Okert, who is a researcher of the history of science education and also science on TV. Is that right? That's right, Annie. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Tell me, tell me all about your research. What do you do? 
specifically? What are you researching? Give us a brief introduction. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'm really <laughs> interested in the ways that people respond to science emotionally. And that's something that I really connected to on a personal level when I was a teenager. Um, and I read my very first piece of science fiction, which was a really bad, pulpy Star Trek themed novel called Vulcan! Exclamation <laughs> point. <laughs> it was really bad. But, you know, I think one thing I've, I, I remember as a kid really finding amazing about science was sort of the, the, the idea of the wonder and the rhetoric of science. And as a researcher years later, I'm still very much interested in these images and emotions around science, um, because I think it really um, helps explain the ways that people who are scientists and people who are not scientists um, connect to themselves and relate to each other. Um, and so my research at Princeton University was about the history of science on television. Um, and I was following um, in the footsteps of an amazing historian whose name is Marcella Follette. And uh, I was basically, I finished, I just finished my comps when I figured out that she had just published a book on science on television. And I had that same idea that most, you know, young doctoral students have when that happens. I thought, oh no, what am I going to do? Someone's done the research I want to do. But it turned out that it was a real blessing to have um, such a great researcher who I could reach out to and who could show me the way as it were. Um, so what she did, um, I was able to develop on. And I'm very lucky because in the United States, there are a couple of really great historians who have also served as great mentors. Um, David Kirby is one who is has been especially influential. He's a historian of science communication. He's based out in California now. Um, but he wrote this amazing book on the history of production of science movies. And so one thing, as I was trying to wrap my mind around this concept of science and TV that I thought I could get into was understanding the ways that science television programs were put together, sort of like how David Kirby had very thoughtfully um, gone behind the scenes and looked at the ways that science advisors had created this whole genre of science fiction films. Um, so yeah, so my dissertation looked at the um, basically the birth of science television as a genre starting in 1948 in Baltimore, uh, Maryland, uh, up until the 1980s um, with Carl Sagan's amazing series Cosmos. Um, and so since then, I was very lucky to secure a postdoc um, at the amazing Science History Institute in Philadelphia, which is where I'm calling you in from. And uh, for the last two years, uh, with the help of with the help of a grant uh, from NASA and the History of Science Society, I've been expanding my research by looking at the ways science fiction programs are also a form of science education. And so that's been really fun. Again, especially as someone who started out by quite literally reading Star Trek. <laughs> right. That's it's a big overview of what I do. <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, let's go back then to the beginning of science on TV, that yeah. 1948 was kind of the start. What yes. was the first thing that people watched on TV that was science-y? Yeah, so um, 
the the very first so that's a great question because um the very first things that people are watching that are sciencey are these science fiction shows and there's a show that comes out in the late 40s called captain video um which is not just a chain of stores from the 1990s <laughs> it's a real <laughs> It was a real, one of these like 19, um, you know, 40s, 50s, you know, science fiction serials. Um, and it was, it premiered on a pro, on a, a station that no longer exists called Dumont. Um, and there used to be basically four major stations across the United States, ABC, CBS, NBC, and Dumont. Um, and so Dumont rose to fame because of this television program, Captain Video. And using the attention from that um, serial, they created the very first science television program that was factual called the Johns Hopkins Science Review. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, so what's interesting is the Johns Hopkins Science Review was not aimed at children, which is surprising because again, when we think a lot about science television today, a lot of it, and there's amazing stuff that's on, but a lot of it is based um, on what, children um want to watch and that wasn't the way that science was considered in the late 1940s and early 1950s it wasn't always about kids right so when did it become something that was for children because like if if i go out and try and you know look up some sort of science um education video it seems very much that it's aimed at like an eight to twelve year old who wants to see things go bang Actually, so Annie, that is exactly the range that science educators have been going for since the 1950s. The very first studies that were done in the 50s and the 60s literally determined that the age range that most appealed to children um, was that age range of 8 to 12. And the studies were redone in the 1970s and that same uh, age range came up again. So yeah, it's 8 to 12. It's about that, the magic range. Um, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> what can I say? Yeah, you just intuit the stuff perfectly. Um, but your question is a very good one, right? Because now if we think about science education, um, there's this idea that you have to reach kids when they're very early. Actually, in the 1940s and the 1950s, there was this idea that um, science was for everybody, mm. no matter what age you were. Um, and so one of the things that as a historian, I really enjoy doing is diving back into the old sources. Um, and looking at the types of ways that science was taught. Um, and there is a very interesting change that happens in the 1950s in the US. Um, and it actually is marked by Sputnik. I'm going to be telling you a little bit a story that's recapped um, from John Rudolph's Amazing Scientists in the Classroom, which I recommend any of your listeners would listen, go and read. It's a great book. But basically, um, in the United States from the 30s onward, this, there's this idea that science is about, science is about everyday living. And that there are ways that people who are consumers um, should know more about science because they should know how to engage with science in their everyday world. So on this program, I told you about the Johns Hopkins Science Review. One of my favorite episodes um, is about dishwashing detergent. And okay. it basically goes through, um, it starts like with a couple of like, you know, John, you know, like John Doe brings out, you know, some basic soap and the host of the program 
um, asks, you know, the viewer, you know, okay, which soap is going to create more bubbles? And, you know, <laughs> and so, right. the, okay, you might say, okay, why is any of this important? Well, it's because the people who are watching these shows in the 1950s are women at home. They're, they're older women. They're what we call stereotypically housewives. And um, there was this idea that they needed to be educated consumers. And so in this one amazing television program, they walked through what the detergent is, you know, and how to make, you know, how to make do with a certain type of soap if you live in an area that has hard water versus soft water. And again, it looks very different because it's not aimed at kids. This is aimed at women in their 40s. <laughs> right. And it's also a very domestic kind of choice. It's aimed yeah. at something that's inside the home rather than mm -hmm. saying, you know, look at the cosmos. Isn't that sciencey? Exactly. I mean, then there's another, there's another great episode that looks more like a shop lesson where it's called the science of wood turning. And they look at, you know, how do you make a table? How do you, you know, what kind of wood grain is best under certain atmospheric conditions? You know, what's going to be waterproof? Okay. Um, and so again, so you have this, you know, sort of this idea of understanding the science around you. Um, this all changes in 1957, um, not coincidentally after Sputnik is launched. And there's, there's, there's this mass hysteria in the United States, um, which is egged on by a certain group of professors at Harvard um, and uh, in Cambridge, uh, who suggest that maybe America would be better served to be introducing students to science and really focus in on sort of students and specifically to try to prep this group, eight to 12 year olds, on the basics of physics hmm. because years later after you know when after they're eight to 12 and you know when they grow when they go into high school um and then when they go from high school on to college um more specifically um that's actually this was the, the focus was how to get college how to get people ready for college so how to focus on high schoolers to get them college ready the idea would be that they would be ready to take high school go from high school level physics to college level physics and then go from college level physics to graduate programs and become physicists okay. who then could ideally be um you know used to develop uh, designs to help win the cold war so, so in again, many ways kind of a political decision rather than just some sort of like oh science is interesting yeah Absolutely. It was a very much a political decision. Um, and again, it was pushed by a group of educators in the um, Harvard and MIT schools. So it was very regional, actually, as well. Um, okay. And this group of educators had an incredible sway over um, what we would think of as STEM education for about uh, maybe 15 years. But so they were how did, right. So how did the um, TV programs change? Well, so that's interesting. Yeah, because they were reflected. And so as a historian, I'm really interested in that shift. And so the TV shows before 1957, um, which there are two big ones called the Johns Hopkins Science Review, and most importantly, watch Mr. Wizard, which is this, which is the first show about science for children. And it's a lovely show. Um, but both of those shows are about um, teaching uh, viewers to appreciate the science of home. Again, as you say, the domestic science. And after 57, it's kind of interesting. There's actually kind of a drought. I used to think of it as a drought anyways. There's this mm. period, um, watch Mr. Wizard is on air, but there aren't any shows that are kind of coming up behind it. And uh, 
1964, Watch Mr. Wizard ends, and then there's a 10-year period between 1964 and 1974 where there are no shows that are science education shows on air, airing every week in the United States. 10 years. But there are shows on about science, and that's what would bring us to Star Trek. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Because I initially, if someone had asked me this, they said, where does Star Trek fit in? And I was like, well, I don't know. But Star Trek is a show, um, interestingly, it has its genesis in 1964. It's about the same year <laughs> that, that Watch Mr. Wizard um, went under. Um, and it was a show that was capitalizing on the interest in space in the 1960s. Now, Annie, you and I both have been doing a lot of, uh, you know, thinking about space in 1969, right? And like, you know, NASA, and this has been a great year for people interested in space and history, right? Absolutely. And like, as you've been traveling, it's amazing to see how excited people are about space, right? Right, there's this kind of, um, I often, when I'm giving talks, will focus in on this idea of it's very hard to define space in the sense that we talk about it in our conversations or documents or, you know, even when we're trying to come up with, like, strategy, for example. Every time we say we talk about space, we we precede it with a couple of space is. So people who are wanting to argue that space needs to be better regulated will say, well, space is congested, space is messy, space is dangerous, therefore we need to contain it and have better regulation. But on the other side of things, I mean, you could equally have often the science, like the scientists and the physicists will run the line of space is vast and it's inspiring and it's, you know, unexplored and uncharted territory. And they're trying to tap into this idea of a pioneering spirit. And and you get these really interesting parallels. I mean, I was at a a conference um, late last year in the US and we had someone who shall remain nameless. uh, I think from like US government slash NASA um, talk to us and say, well, you know, today is Columbus Day. And uh-huh. that's really important because in space we are going to go and we're going to pioneer and we're going to settle it. And it's this right. real kind of, um, what's the word for it? Uh, I've lost the word. Help me out. What's the, the oh, bad thing uh, to do? Well, colonial. So, colonial. It's this right, real yeah. colonial kind of idea about what you need to do with space but I even see it in the way that I interact I mean you and I were commenting that both of us don't really have a particular interest in space beyond our specific research area which obviously we find fascinating because that's why we do it but at the same time it's almost like there's this club and to gain admission to the space club you need to brand yourself accordingly and so that involves wearing galaxy print dresses if you're in Australia for example or it involves wearing science themed jewelry or things like that absolutely I've got both of those things (laughs) and one thing I like one of the things that I was kind of wondering about like last year was again so again there's like idea that I discovered that there's this 10 year gap where there's no there's nothing about science on television in 69 Mm. or in a lot of the 60s and yet we have this very clear idea and this enthusiasm about space and a lot of that's visual right and I was trying to put it together I was like okay well why where do these images of space how how is space being represented on television Um, because it is during this time Um, and that's when I discovered 
But NASA basically had an active PR team in the 1960s that was, you know, that they worked with um, different television programs and they would work to like give like, you know, astronauts cameos, not necessarily astronauts, but like astronaut characters cameos oh. in pop shows like, you know, I Dream of Genie, Gilligan's Island. And that was sort of how they started getting in touch with Gene Roddenberry for Star Trek in 1964. Um, so Roddenberry had been, um, uh, I believe he was in the Air Force, um, and he had left that, uh, became a pilot, and then tried to figure out what he wanted to do. And he ended up actually getting a job at um, the LA Police Department, where he worked as a police officer for several years. And through that, he'd become connected as with through Hollywood as a advisor for a television program that was very popular at the time called Dragnet. So Gene Ronberry was a technical advisor on this police procedural. And uh -huh. so that's where he started to get this idea from what I've read about the importance of depicting science realistically. And so when he was writing his own program and he decided to have it be about space, he reached out to NASA for ideas on how to create this realistic vision of science in the future. And he figured that you could create a realistic vision of science by seeing what science looked like in 1964, 1965. And the folks at NASA understood that this would be educational. And to me, that's what's really interesting here because mm -hmm. There, we don't see um, as many of these direct collaborations before the 60s. Um, and there's sometimes a lot of, um, you know, um, tension between people who are scientists and not scientists in the television world, especially in the 60s. But Star Trek is a very great example of how the folks at NASA and the folks who were writing the show understood from the get-go that Star Trek would be a great version of science education on television. You know, even kind of in a lay sense, you know, they, it, there's a, um, I, I've actually, I, I don't know very much about it, but there's another show that comes out in this time period that was supposed to be very science, that was meant to be very scientific and very educational. Um, and that was Doctor Who. Um, yeah. Over, okay. yeah, yeah, so Doctor Who started out as a science education show. <laughs> Fun fact. Hi. <laughs> As right. Yeah, as you do. And that was why you had, that was the setup. That's why you had a character who was the doctor who would travel, who could travel to ancient Rome and teach viewers about, you know, ancient Rome or ancient Greece and then travel into the future and teach them about education and science and all of that. Star Trek was never supposed to be educational in that way, but it was supposed to be so realistic that people would learn about science. Okay. So, so couching some sort of entertainment um sorry couching some sort of education within an entertaining show that yes. would then engage viewers and I guess appeal to yeah. that idea that space is fascinating and vast and explored and yeah. really that idea of the potential so I suppose in some ways a message of hope through science when the rest yes. of the you know the rest of what everyone was hearing was we're going to die because nuclear bombs are going to go off and that's actually, a, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's something that we forget a lot about in the night now was how much 
tension there was in the in the early to mid 60s about nuclear weapons in the United States, right? And specifically about, you know, kind of, yeah, I mean, that, you know, that was part of the Cold War that kept people very anxious. And Star yeah. Trek, um, and, and the NASA program, of course, hadn't been necessarily uh, approved of the entire way through. Um, there's some good historians who, you know, not me, but there are other people who've done studies on this, and they've shown that popular opinion to going to the moon wasn't all that high through the 60s. I mean, there was a war going on. And again, one thing that as I delved into doing this research last year that kept on coming up again and again was that as people on one hand were excited about space, they were also nervous about civil rights and, you know, Vietnam. And there was a lot of uh, concern that money was being diverted into um, this unnecessary program. Which well, we see that. Like, I've seen that recently as well with the announcement of we're going back to the moon. And, yeah. like, it's not all sort of, yes, let's go, it's exciting. There's there's a strong element of that that's being pushed. But at the same time, yeah. there's, like, a lot of voices saying, really? Like, is that the best use of our resources and all of those things? Exactly. And, and that's in a time when we have more... We're, we're more saturated with STEM education and STEM-themed entertainment than ever before. Yes. It doesn't, doesn't seem to stem that tide, right? Yeah. But again, so if we look at and we're trying to think about, you know, why, why were people so excited by, about space? How, were, how did um, NASA keep up people's excitements about space in the 1960s? One thing I also, again, television is this answer. So television um, goes from being fairly educational, and it is. It's always, it's always this balance between educational and promotional. And mm. what I discovered was that, um, so again, up, up through the 60s, um, it was very common um, to, especially if you lived on the East Coast, um, when one of the launches was happening, you would, you know, if you were a kid, um, there would often be an assembly and you'd everyone would go, you know, go to the assembly and, you, you know, the teacher would wheel out a cart, the television on it, and the entire school would watch the liftoff. And so there was... What's interesting to me, what I found out about science and television and space in the 1960s was that there was this way in which the image that the ways that people related to science in the 1960s was very much mediated through the television and through mm. space. I mean, so people's experiences of the, the launch and the liftoff of every Apollo mission was reflected by what they would see on screen. Um, and that would, you know, so just by watching an image years later of um, in a, a liftoff, people would get super emotional because they would, you know, they would see these images and it would remind them of being a child and watching those same images on the television screen. And again, this is going back to what am I interested in? I'm interested in this interplay between science, television, the viewer, and emotion and trust. And again, 1960s, amazing case study. So where do you have science and television in the 1960s? You have it in, um, in these, these liftoffs um, that are televised. You have it on Star Trek. Um, and then you actually have the actual um, moon landing itself, which, is, which was an incredible feat. Um, you know, I believe um, that it was an actual... CBS did the longest broadcast, and I believe they did a 36-hour broadcast 
of the the lunar mission for mm-hmm. Apollo 11. Um, and um, one of the things I found out when I was researching, and this is material that has been covered well by Kathy Prevness, um, who's a historian of communication, is that um, there was actually a, a moon set built. <laughs> now the moon landing is real. It's very, very real. But right, let's be careful here. What are you telling us? No, no, but what's interesting is the same people who were doing science education on television and the same people who were doing these science fiction shows were, again, working very closely with science journalists in the 1960s. And so just in case things fell through, they, are, they had built on the CBS soundstage a lunar replica. And wow. so... Isn't that cool? And there were some shots of that that were used like intercut between in this 36 hour broadcast because that's a pretty, that's a long time. Um, And so some people have this memory, like, so when people again, talked about um, this idea that, well, the moon landing was fake, you know, there was a set built. There was a teeny tiny grain of truth, which that there wasn't a set built was amazing is that the people who built the set were the same folks who had also worked on Space Odyssey 2001. So again, there is this way in the late 1960s, if you're interested in science education, science communication, and just science in general, there are all these people working together to put science on TV for the general public. And I know I'm wandering around a lot here. (laughs) That is absolutely fine. I mean, this, this podcast is called Space Junk for a reason. The listeners do not expect anything like curated or anything else. It's, it's literally just, I have interesting conversations and they get to listen in sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to go back to Star Trek and talk about those emotions. You mentioned that there was like an element of trust that was an yeah. emotion that was trying to be in, invoked perhaps. So oh, absolutely. Tell me more about Star Trek and, and how it, it did that because I've watched a lot of the early Star Trek. Um, me and my dad like got out the VHS tapes yeah. from back when we used to have a video rental store that had actual videos. Uh, we and we watched some of the early Star Trek, and my dad had really fond memories of watching it. And then we watched it together, and he was like, "Oh my god, this is so bad! <laughs> it's just in the production value." Like yes. they have sort of a tin can on a string in front of a black yeah. cloth and they're like, look, it's the space truth. Um, but something yeah. that really I noticed was as someone who's grown up with, I guess, Star Wars and the new Star Trek movies um, and a lot of, I guess, quite violent discourse was the way in which the early Star Trek was actually so peaceful. Like it yeah. was really they push this whole like we're exploring we're being like non-judgmental and and then they had their their laser gun things but it was always they made it very clear that it was set to stun only it wasn't about killing anyone and and all of those things and for me I I thought this like I was like did people in the 60s and 70s really buy this stuff like surely they like how did this sell um you know it doesn't make sense to me as a millennial but but I like it and so yeah. like, how did that kind of play into this sciencey, spacey, peaceful narrative at the time when countries were pointing these nukes at each other? It, it seems I, odd to me. It, it is. It is odd. And I think at the same time, the fact that they had this peaceful message was part of what made it 
hopeful at the time and endearing, enduring years later. Um, and again, that's such a great question. Um, so from what I know, um, from reading the fan mail, um, I, you know, I think people really appreciated that, um, that it wasn't a violent show. One thing that they really liked in terms of uh, the program was that there was a lot of very witty banter back and forth between the protagonists of the show. So for instance, like one thing that's a classic Star Trekism is all of the great, uh, you know, repertoire between uh, uh, Dr. Leonard McCoy and Mr. Spock, right? They go back and forth and, you know, yeah. and Fox always being made fun of, or then he's like, you know, he, he, you know, he has something logical as a retort. Um, and what I know from the, the, the inner, the memos was that, um, was that the viewers wanted more and more of that. They really liked that. And they really liked that, you know, you could have these funny people who, you know, who, who would work out their problems and would not end up holding against it against each other, right? You know, no one bored. Uh -huh. um, and so that was important. And, um, you know, I think that in terms of the series, in terms of uh, modeling Cold War relations, um, it was important to Roddenberry to show that there were peaceful ways to resolve these issues. And for the people working on the show, um, one thing I like to, I often think about is how a lot of them were folks who had um, served in World War II or had known people, a lot of people who had served in World War II, right? These were people who were yeah. middle-aged in the 60s. Um, and so as a generation in general, these were people who were fairly, were, were very peaceful and, you know, did not, uh, did not want to see another, were against Vietnam and were disgusted by violence. Um, and that, which actually reminds me of another show, um, but just go back to, to stick with Star Trek here for a bit longer. Um, you know, I think Star Trek was in some ways surprising because it resonated so strongly with teenagers. Huh, okay. Teenagers and people in their 20s. And again, if we think about the people who were protesting Vietnam um, and who were being um, enlisted and conscripted, it was, you know, there were these young men in there, you know, who were in there almost just out of their teens. And so, again, there is very good reason why there were a lot of, why the show is very peaceful and um, really about sort of suggesting that, you know, you can give peace a chance. I mean, there is, there are some really funny episodes. There's like a really great one where they actually have space hippies um, who are brought on board. This is the season three episode, I think, called The Way to Eden. <laughs> it's a great episode. Do you remember this one, Annie? <laughs> I don't, but I'll definitely be looking it up. And I think, um, you know, and I think that one was probably critical in some ways of the peace movement. And, and Star Trek, again, at its heart, was a show that looked at society. Um, and that's what made it a very interesting piece of what I would call science education, because it examined that relationship between science and society. Um, you know, because it's one of these shows that uh, really took 
you know, didn't portray science all in a bad light or all in a good light. It, it took issues that were in the present and extrapolated what they could look like in the future. And so again, so Gene Ronberry was in conversation with NASA. He was also in conversation with folks at the Rand Corporation, which is this mm. like big global think tank. And so they'd send him clippings of stuff. And I remember when I was going through the archive, that one thing that they had, um, just, you know, clipped out were articles about um, androids. And they were like, you know, Cybermen, you know, question mark, you know, like, what can we do with this? And they have, um, you know, there are a couple of episodes uh, that in the original series, and of course, in the next generation that look at android life. Um, and it's still an issue um, that uh, are, I'm not gonna spoil, I'm gonna do any spoilers for Picard, but it's an issue that has come up in the most recent series as well. Um, but again, what I think is really interesting and different about Star Trek and why I would argue that it counts as science education is that science educational shows before Star Trek did not look at the issues about science and society. A science right. show from the 1950s will teach you what kind of dishwashing detergent you should use on your dishes. It won't be telling you about the ways that that detergent is going to affect the ecosystem, right? But Star Trek is a show that um, thinks seriously about questions of nuclear deterrence. You know, it looks at questions of um, what if you had a, a, a computer programmed to conduct war? Would that be ethical? And so um, in some ways, it's one of these, it's one of the first examples of a really fantastic science and technology study program that's on air, right? And what's really exciting is that after Star Trek, other shows start looking more at science and society. Now, I'm not going to say that Star Trek necessarily directly inspired a lot of, you know, that, that, that genre, but I kind of think it did, actually, um, mm. because, you know, it was a science fiction show. It could push the boundaries. If it had been a science educational show, I think it would have been um, perhaps it might not have had that freedom um, yeah. at, at that period, especially. Um, I think in that period, education was not supposed to be so self-reflexive and reflective. Because so what's interesting is, so again, by the 1970s, pick up and again, 1974 is when the new, um, sort of the next wave of science education shows start up with Nova, which is amazing. It's the longest running science TV show in the United States. Uh, so like Nova, um, 321 Contact, Cosmos, um, Discovery, Newton's Apple. You have a whole slew of other shows and they all start and they all look at science and society. You know, they all look more closely at these relationships. Yeah. But Star Trek is the first one. You've been listening to Space Junk. If you'd like to find out more about anything on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram where I'm at Annie Handmer, and you're welcome to send me a message. You can also email thespacejunkpod at gmail.com and you can find my YouTube channel by searching Annie Handmer. If you would like to support this podcast financially and help me to keep producing it, then you can find my Patreon by going to www.patreon.com slash thespacejunkpod. 
I'd like to thank everyone who already supports the podcast. You make it possible for me to keep putting out content and I really, really appreciate it. That's all from me. Stay safe and stay nerdy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.